0: Today, we have a very special guest with us on the podcast, and she is a graduate of Michigan State University, where she received her bachelor's degree in animal science, a doctorate in veterinary medicine, and master's in public health. Her interests include young stock care and handling, on-farm protocol, and culture development and animal welfare. She is passionate about communicating with consumers about modern agriculture through her personal social media accounts uh, on Calf Vet on Facebook and Instagram. And she lives with her husband, Travis, and their sons, McCoy and Hayes, in Northwest Ohio, where they cash crop farm, raise beef cattle, replacement heifers, and raise wean finish pigs. So, welcome, Dr. Marissa Hake, to the Beyond the Barn podcast. Hello.
1: Thank you so, so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yes, we're very excited to have you on today. And before we get into our interview today, I did want to just bring up for our listeners that any of the topics that we cover on the Beyond the Barn podcast, they're more generalized and not specific to any individual horse or any specific situation in other livestock. So be sure to always work with your local veterinarian and a nutritionist if you have one before making any drastic changes to your horses or your other livestock's feed programs. You can always reach out to talk to us directly with our nutritionists, Dr. Cubitt or Dr. Duran, on any specifics you'd like to know. So Dr. Hake, thank you. You, in your bio mentions you are in Northwest Ohio. So is that where you're originally from or is that where life just kind of took you?
1: <laughs> that is where life took me. I am originally from Michigan, kind of on the west side of the state, just south of Grand Rapids. And that's where I grew up. And then uh, I met my husband at college and his family farm is here in Northwest Ohio. I can see Indiana from my house and we're about 10 miles from Michigan. So I, I call it barely Ohio. Right. And my husband came back to, he's actually the seventh generation on his family farms, which is pretty cool.
0: That is incredible. That's really awesome. And that explains then why you bleed Michigan State so strongly then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I always get the oh, so you're a Buckeye, and I'm like, uh, how dare you? Don't you no, say those I, words
0: to me? <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I'm a Spartan through and through. I just happen to have to live in Ohio.
0: That's awesome, though. That's so awesome that your husband's seventh generation, and then your boys are going to be eighth. So that's that's really amazing. I was just curious. Did you grow up in agriculture, or how did this life take you on this path?
1: Yeah. You know, I grew up in a very rural ag area. You know, I kind of felt like all my friends had dairy farms and, you know, growing up doing forage and things like that. The farm that I lived on was just a cash crop farm. And a retired dairy farm. So we didn't have any livestock when I was growing up. I was actually into horses. And so that's really, you know, where my passion for animals started. And it wasn't until I was in undergrad at Michigan State doing my animal science studies that I really fell in love with food animal agriculture. And so I I thought my goal was to be an equine veterinarian. I was really interested in sports medicine. And then my plans changed in undergrad. And I realized, you know, I really love working with farmers. I really love food animal medicine. And so that's kind of when my, my trajectory changed, I guess.
0: That's really neat. So when you went to college and you said that you, you know, started out doing your animal science degree, did you have a vision at that point or have an idea about what you wanted to do? Or did you think, hey, I could totally be a veterinarian?
1: You know, I always, I'm one of those kids, like I've always wanted to be a veterinarian. I never understood the kids who went to college and they were like, I don't know what I want to (laughs) do. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know what you want to do? Like, I guess I didn't have any other plan for my life than to be a vet. So, you know, where I wanted to be in veterinary medicine has changed, but I've, this is what I've always wanted to do.
0: That's really cool. Can you tell us about an experience that completely changed your mindset as a veterinarian with, you know, your years of experience that you've had so far?
1: Yeah, you know, I th- really think sharing on social media has been something that's that's really changed my mindset. It's challenged me to be a better communicator, and it's also given me a perspective on what consumers think and want. It's not something as veterinarians that we often get to interact with, you know, the consumers right. of the animals that we work with. But I think it's incredibly important that we in the food animal industry understand, you know, one, help our consumers feel good about, you know, how their food is raised. And two, help our clients understand the value that veterinarians can bring to their operations, whether it's, you know, traditional or or in a non-traditional sense.
0: No, that's excellent. And I think there are more and more that are kind of stepping out. And I feel like you have a lot to do with inspiring vet students and veterinarians to do that you know i've always felt like agriculture has always been a little bit behind when it comes to you know telling our story and kind of making that connection directly with the consumers because they just don't always understand not that they know any better it's just that they they aren't taught the right information and so i think that's wonderful that you use your platform for such good
1: thank you i appreciate that that is that is definitely one of my goals with it
0: what do you feel like has been your greatest challenge as a veterinarian? I
1: started my career out working in calf medicine. So I, right out of college, I went and I, and I worked for a big calf company. And, you know, i in charge of the welfare and the health around 60,000 calves on milk at a time. And I really loved practicing. You know, it's kind of that what everyone pictures, you know, the the vet doing. And then in 2020, I had the opportunity to change roles. And I took a role in industry working for Fairlife, the milk company. And so for me, it was a little hard, I guess, this early in my career, moving into industry and, and working in the animal welfare space. It comes with a little bit of... <laughs> like imposter syndrome yeah. with it. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. you're not out, you know, doing emergency calls every day and working in the field. That's been a little different. And it's something that, you know, I like to discuss with vet students your veterinary degree can take you so many different places and within industry, you know, working for pharmaceutical companies, working for the government and, and health and stuff like that. So working for a brand like I do. So it's just such a neat degree that you can do so much more with that, you know, most people don't realize.
0: Did you know that when you were a vet student, did you realize those opportunities? Or is it something that you realized as you've kind of worked in the vet industry?
1: Yeah, you know what, I think I was kind of in between. When I was in vet school, I really wanted to work as a staff veterinarian. So I didn't want to, I I, I you know, I was open to anything, obviously, right? You just right. want to get out and get a yep. job. But if I could have picked, I really want to work for a farm. So being on farm every single day, you know, uh, training, working with all the guys running internal studies, like I really liked that aspect of it. And so that was kind of the in-between of not working for a company, but also, but not working for a clinic. And the reason for that is I just, I kept going out to these farms and I kept seeing how some of the, you know, traditional veterinary roles were being replaced. And so for me, it was kind of writing on the walls where as a veterinarian, we needed to find a different way to bring value to our clients. And so I am definitely kind of working in that space now.
0: That's really good of you to, you know, see that and be more proactive rather than it kind of hit the point where you didn't necessarily realize it. And then you were in a situation that you're struggling to find a new role for yourself.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, that doesn't mean that won't happen again, but. (laughs) Right.
0: But I think if you kind of always have that at the forefront of your mind, it's always good to be more proactive about those types of things and just, you know, move with the changes that happen. Right. I know change can be really hard for some people, but it's inevitable. So yeah, that's really great. And I had another side question on this being just curious about. Obviously, you work with calves a lot, but just kind of like large animal vet in general, because that's kind of what you had to study. Were there any challenges for you being a female in that space? I bet if you asked this question 20 years ago,
1: someone else's response might be different. Yeah, for me, you know, when I was in vet school, 80% of our class was females. And I had female large animal professors. And there's been women in front of me who have really paved the way for us in this industry. So I wouldn't say that, you know, I had a, a ton of challenges, you know, physically, things are different for us. So That's the beauty of it, though, is there's so many amazing female veterinarians out there that have found different ways to do things and that are easier physically and uh, oftentimes easier on the cow. So I didn't feel like I faced a ton of challenges in that aspect because people have already figured it out before me.
0: That's good. That's good that our, our industry has moved in that way and adjusted. Absolutely. Who in your life do you feel like has been your greatest inspiration? Can you tell us a little bit about them?
1: There's so many great people in my life, but I kind of always go back to my grandpa. So I grew up on my grandpa's retired dairy farm right across the road. And my kind of greatest thing in life was trying to make him proud. So he was totally psyched when I told him that I wanted to work in dairy and work with cattle. And so he was just you know simple and and kind and hardworking. And so I try to make him proud every day.
0: Oh, that's amazing. That's such a good person to have as your inspiration. Yeah, grandpas are always special, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and then if you could go back in time and visit your vet student self when you were going through school and doing all of that, what would you tell yourself if you had a conversation?
1: Yeah, it's going to be okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> little mantra there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Vet school is interesting. It's such an undertaking. It's a mentally draining. It's financially draining. And so, and veter- you know, as vet students, we're just so afraid to fail. And I was, I was talking to an older veterinarian in Tucson. She's a little bit older than me. And we were, we were talking about new grads. And she commented that they're just, they're just so afraid to try new things or fail. Yeah. And I think it might spur a little bit from us all being on social media. And, yeah. you know, when older vets started, you know, they had clients who weren't using Google and they really never had to think, wow, if I screw this up, I'll probably be blasted on Facebook for being a terrible right. vet. Right. You know, so there's just a it's a different atmosphere for young vets to come out and learn And we literally just look at failure in a different way. And so that's really something I would tell myself or any other vet students is that we're going to fail and you're
0: going to learn and you're going to become a better vet
1: because of it. And so don't let that that fear paralyze you.
0: Right. And I think that's also a great message to then even share with clients or, you know, anybody who owns livestock, right, because or animals, because at one point or, or another, they have very well cross paths with a veterinarian and just understanding the pressures that come with being a veterinarian and being understanding and realizing that, yes, you guys are real people too, with real feelings. And mental health has been a huge thing in the vet industry. And I'm glad that people are talking more about it, but I think it's important for us as, you know, clients to remember that you guys are real people too. And you work very hard for us. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that if anybody, any veterinarian could, you know, talk to their clients, frankly, it would be, you know, that at the end of the day, this, we do this for the animals, right. And we do this to, to give back to our clients and, you know, we don't always have all the answers and, you know, if not, we'll go try to find them for you. But at the end of the day, you know, we're humans, there's a human behind, you know, these businesses and things like that.
0: Yes, absolutely. And so Kind of turning to a little bit of another direction, and we've talked a little bit about social media and influencing. So unless people already follow you or maybe are Googling you right now, (laughs) I know you don't really like to think of yourself as kind of a social media influencer, but you do have a pretty decent following on your social channels and you share a lot of engaging, inspiring and helpful information for vet students for female farmers and ranchers, you know, the rural community in general, etc. And you shared a post once about comparing a social media influencer to being like a used car salesman, and you're totally not wrong sometimes. <laughs> but then you pointed out that it really depends on how you use your influence that really matters. And so, can you share with us your quote-unquote influencer experience from back in the sixth grade when you cut your hair for locks of love?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I had totally forgotten about this. My grandma died earlier this year, and my aunt found a bunch of these old newspaper clippings from my childhood, which is like, you know, grandparents are so sweet. It'd be like, yeah, oh, you made like student of the month or whatever. You know, like every clipping right. she had. And <laughs> I'd grown my hair out for locks of love when I was in sixth grade. And I don't really know kind of what inspired me to do it, but I asked a bunch of other girls to do it with me in our middle school. And then the faculty kind of got involved. Our student, uh, our superintendent said, you know, he'd shave his head if we got ten girls to do it. And I can't. I think we were way over that. I think we were like fifteen. And so we had this big school assembly where every girl sat down and got their hair cut off and then like local salons came donated their time to give us all new styles and it was really cool and it but it was something that i never kind of considered as influence until you know i I read the newspaper clipping this year as an adult and i was like "Wow, wow you know this is really the power of leading by example and using your influence for good
0: Right. And like, you know, being at that time, social media didn't exist. And so nobody really even like that it, word influencer wasn't really a word in our dictionary, really. But that's awesome. That's awesome that in the sixth grade that you felt inspired to do something like that. And, you know, get others to jump on board with you and look at you now. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> was a budding influencer back then.
0: <laughs> yeah, you knew it was just your calling in life. <laughs> So you mentioned earlier that your very like your initial interest in animals stemmed with horses, which is great because I know we have a lot of listeners on our podcast that are horse owners. So can you share with us a little bit about what you did with horses and, you know, did you show, did you compete or how were they an important part of your life at that time?
1: Yeah, I started riding, I think when I was around six. I was like the little girl who had begged and begged for a pony. And so my parents <laughs> bought me the most evil little Shetland mare <laughs> to learn on. Uh, and most are Yeah. It's it's like one of those things like if you know you know, if yep. you know you know on that. So yeah, I also had like a little black miniature horse that I used to cart around. So That's kind of my childhood was honestly just out messing around on those, taking them to 4-H and riding them in parades and things like that. And then I stepped up into kind of showing Arabians and half Arab saddlebreds. Mm -hmm. So I started showing those when I was around nine. And I've been riding them or showing on and off since then. So, you know, well into my 30s. And I actually have three national championships in showmanship.
0: Oh, nice. So that's kind of my, yeah, that's my horse experience. That's awesome. And so you still show a little bit now?
1: Yeah. Yep. I show saddle seat now. I don't own a horse right now. I kind of sold that because the last couple of years we've been busy with work and cows and having babies, but I hope to get back into it when things slow down a little bit.
0: Yeah, totally get that. So when I saw this a couple months ago, you took us bit of a trip down memory lane in your stories. And when I saw this, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is just so cool. But you were sharing some old pictures and memories that you had found with all of your followers. And one of them happened to be a group picture at a horse show with Tim Allen. So please tell us how in the world did you end (laughs) up at a horse show with him? Yeah, Tim, the tool man Taylor. Yes.
1: So (laughs) Tim Allen is actually originally from Michigan. Right. And his niece showed horses with me. Her horse was at the same trainer my horse was at when we were in high school. And so we were down in Albuquerque, New Mexico for our youth national championships. And he came to watch her show. And that's how I ended up
0: meeting him. That is so cool. Tim Allen's probably one of my favorite actors. Like everything that he does is just I just love it. <laughs> yeah, it was really that's cool. That's so cool. What a fun experience. And then, I mean, it's also kind of cool that, you know, you don't even meet him in Michigan, though. You meet him in New Mexico. Is that where you were said you were at?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah it was, it's such a small world. But it, yeah, that was like my one celebrity sighting of my life, I guess.
0: <laughs> well, it's a good one. <laughs> that's pretty neat. We talked about in your bio, some of the animals that you own, but... I know I've seen in your stories that you have another species to add to that list. Oh. (laughs) So can you talk to us about what farm animals you guys currently own right now? That's so funny because I didn't even put them on my list.
1: So we do background some dairy beef steers and we finish some for our our, our freezer beef business. And then like mentioned, we kind of have a a really small finished floor of hogs. And then we have around 85 head of cow-calf operation of British Whites. And on top of all that, my husband has. (laughs) Your
0: husband, (laughs) not you. I like how you say that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. My husband has seven head of Katahdin sheep that are due to lamb here any day. So that's his venture.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What is your husband's? (laughs) What is his plans with the sheep?
1: Yeah. So they are, I guess they call them haired sheep so that you don't have to shear them. Okay, They're supposed to be pretty hardy. And we will be using them for pasture management. So running them behind the cows to clean up and manage our pastures. So
0: that's excellent That's the plan. (laughs) No, that's good. Right. Because I mean, we always, you know, we hear about like how, you know, different animals, they, you know, actually consume grasses differently. And so that's really, really great way to kind of, for some of the grass that maybe your cattle aren't eating, that they can take care of that for you.
1: And they are treat trained. So we have your little alfalfa pellets down in the barn and they love them. So they come running whenever they hear the bag shake.
0: (laughs) They love it. Oh, good. I love that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And you mentioned, I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask this for anybody listening (laughs) because you're pretty proud of it. But what is your favorite breed of cattle and why?
1: Yeah, I love British whites. That's the cow calf herd that we have it's kind of funny. So I worked in the cab with calves. And one day I was walking through the barn and I saw this calf and it had perfect black ears and nose and these like perfect mm-hmm. little dots above its eyebrows. And I was like, Oh my God, what is it? What is this?
0: You <laughs> <Cutest> thing ever.
1: <laughs> I'm like, this is the most beautiful calf I've ever seen in my life. Like sending pictures. I'm like, what is this? Someone tell me. And so I finally found that this is a British white and this is what they look like. And we'd already kind of wanted to start a cow herd at some point, a beef cow herd. And so I started looking more into the British White breed, and you know, they're really docile. They're super good moms, and they're hardy. We've had really great beef out of our animals, and uh, obviously, we just love the look of them. So, you know, I always say not everything has to be black, and so we have yep. white cattle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I haven't come across very many British Whites. In fact. I mean, I grew up on a small cattle operation, cow-calf operation in Central Oregon, and we had, growing up, we had red Angus, and then as we kind of grew up and sold a lot of that, and my brother kind of took over, he went into kind of black Angus, which, you know, is pretty trendy, I think, and then into commercial stuff, and that's what we have now, but I think coming across your page was the first I mean, obviously, I knew of the breed, but the first ones that I knew that actually had them, and they are, I will agree with you, they are quite cute, especially the calves.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're definitely, they have curb appeal, is what I call them.
0: Oh, yeah, it, that's a good way to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get into the nitty gritty of our main topic today, which is hardware disease in cattle. Can you give us just kind of a brief rundown of how the digestive system works in cattle since it's quite different from horses and some of our other species?
1: Absolutely. So cows are considered ruminants. And when I say, I'll talk about cows today, but when I'm talking about ruminants, it's cattle, sheep, goats... Buffalo, deer, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, and if ruminants really what that means is they just have a big fermentation vat inside of them and they regurgitate their food, which is called a cud. It comes up and they rechew it, which aids in digestion and swallow it. And so, the cow's digestive system obviously is the mouth. They chew it up there, goes down the esophagus, and then it goes into kind of a complex four compartment stomach. And then once it passes through that, it goes through a small intestine and large intestine and then out the back end. It's pretty simple. What's so cool about ruminants is the fact that they, they can ferment their feet inside of them, right? And so this big four compartment stomach is just this big factory. It's just mind blowing to me what they can convert, you know, these undigestible fibers and things that, you know, humans can't use like corn stalks and and stuff like that. And, you know, turn it into delicious protein. So do you want me to go through each compartment of the stomach? Yeah, you can mention what each of the roles are for those sections. Sure. Yeah. So the rumen is the big fermentation vat, right? Holds up to about 25 gallons. It's huge. It lives on the left side of the body on the cow. So if you're standing behind them and looking forward, your left hand will be on that side. And so that's where all the business happens usually. And then there's also a little small compartment within there called the reticulum, it kind of lies on the bottom. Together, they're kind of one big compartment. And then the next one would be the omasum, which is kind of the area that it, it absorbs a lot of the water. And then the abomasum is kind of the only compartment that has glands. So this is really the kind of the true stomach, right, where there's digestive
0: enzymes and things like that to break down feed. Excellent. I wanted you to kind of give us a little bit of an intro into this, because what you will now talk about is what impacts, it impacts the digestive system. And so what is hardware disease and what animals can it impact?
1: Yeah, so hardware disease is a fan, or is a kind of the colloquial name for bovine traumatic reticulopericarditis, and that's the fancy word for it. But that really describes what's happening. When we're talking about the cow, there's really two compartments in the cows. There's a thorax, which is where kind of the heart and lungs live. And then that's separated from the abdomen, which is where the rest of the junk is. So the stomach, the intestines, you know, kidneys, uterus, all those things. And those two compartments are separated by the diaphragm, which is the muscle that controls breathing. So what happens with hardware is the reticulum, which is that little part of the rumen that I was talking about, Mm -hmm. happens to live right up against that diaphragm. And what's on the other side of that diaphragm in the thorax is the heart. So they're separated by just a thin muscle, which is what happens with hardware is when a cow eats heavy food or a metal object, it actually drops down into that reticulum and gets caught in there. And that heavy stuff, it's great because that heavy stuff can't move through the digestive tract. But if say it eats a nail or a wire, it also sits right there it's not stagnant, right? Cause the, the stomach's a muscle. So that reticulum is always contracting. And so what happens is when that muscle is contracting, that sharp piece of metal can work its way through the stomach, poke through the diaphragm and actually poke into the heart when it's all the way through and cause this disease that we call hardware.
0: Okay. And so being bovine in the name, is it just cattle then that are impacted by it? Cattle are the most
1: common. So when cows are eating, they use their tongue and they kind of sweep things up. And whereas sheep and goats use their lips and teeth to grasp grass and things, so they tend to sort a lot better. So they can get the disease, but cattle are far
0: more likely to get it. Okay, that's good to know. And then you just answered why cattle are more at a higher risk of getting that, which makes a lot of sense. So then... Another question that I had was, can they be at an even higher risk of it with pregnancy and during calving when they have all sorts of stuff shifting around in their body?
1: Yeah, for anyone who's had a baby, you'll understand this. But <laughs> yes. you know, that <laughs> that big gravid uterus pushes the rumen forward and, and displaces that rumen and reticulum up even farther, which can cause that to perforate and cause hardware. And then also just the act of, of calving. So pushing at that abdominal contraction can cause an acute perforation as well.
0: You had kind of explained the process of what happens as the metal kind of works through the body and everything. Are there any obvious symptoms that, you know, cattle owners can see happening and know that there might be something wrong that they might need to get their vet out to get that animal checked? You
1: know, uh, hardware is hard because sometimes the symptoms are pretty generic. A lot of times they kind of are, what we, we use is a, it's a very technical term called ADR. And ADR is ain't doing right and or sometimes i diagnose sbi which is something bad inside yeah. <laughs> so these are these are just animals that might be you know getting thin on them you know on and off feed it can present in so many different ways that it's it's a kind of hard to diagnose some strong strong suggestive symptoms would be animals that kind of they stand with their head and neck extended They grunt. You might notice that their elbows kind of point out. And so that shows that they have pain a lot of times in that upper abdomen or thorax. But again, it might be just they're losing weight over time. If you can get a a stethoscope on them, if they have a bunch of inflammation within around that heart, you can hear their heart sounds will be muffled. Sometimes they'll have some brisket edema. But other than that, it's hard to diagnose sometimes.
0: So that probably then just shows how maybe preventative action is important with something like this initially then
1: absolutely yeah really good feed hygiene so making sure that our pastures and our feed equipment are free of metal so you know especially people that are mixing using mixers to grind hay and things like that little pieces of metal can come off those pieces of equipment The one thing that I do with my herd and encourage others to do is to actually put magnets in their animals. So they're really inexpensive. they are these little magnets that you can just put down their throat with like a balling gun. And that magnet acts just like a piece of metal. So it drops in, drops right down into the reticulum. And then what it does is if metal falls in there, the metal sticks to it. And then it kind of all sticks on there. And hopefully that holds it in place so that it won't poke through and, and cause disease.
0: That's great. So some options for people to think about and can to consider, because especially I mean, if, you know, we think about some people that maybe might have like, especially like a small herd, or maybe they're looking to get into owning some cattle or something like that, this might be something that they're just not aware of and realize could could happen. So now I know you said that this symptoms are really kind of hard to identify sometimes with this disease. But you know, if we are able to get to that point and figure that out, how can this be diagnosed and then treated if it's not too far gone?
1: Yeah, you know, there's kind of different avenues, I guess. So one, you know, if it's mild and, and she's just not getting any better, she could probably be a coal animal. The next thing, some people, if, if they have an x-ray, you can go out and x-ray them and catch that piece of metal. Some people perform ultrasound or and, and do some blood work to work it up. If this is a suspect of this, they might put a magnet in them to help try to pull that and put it back in place and then treat them for the infection and all the inflammation that's happening. Sometimes if it's caught early enough, that works out just fine. If it's a really high-dollar animal, they move on to stuff like You can go in and surgically try to remove the piece of metal and, or, you know, they do some funny things where like they elevate the front feet to get the pressure off that room and pressure off of it. And they have a high dollar caffeinum or something like that. So that's something that, you know, you would definitely have to work with your veterinarian or university to get done. But if it's caught early enough, a lot of times it can be treated.
0: Right. Okay. Well, that's good. And you've kind of, you know, walked us through a little bit about hardware disease, what it is, how you can kind of diagnose it, treat it and things like that. And unfortunately, last year, you had this experience within your own cattle herd. Can you tell us a little bit about this experience that you had?
1: Yeah, my cows were out on stocks, and we had baled a bunch of hay we'd bought a kind of a backstory. We'd bought a golf course and it was, you know, hadn't been used in a bunch of years. And so we ended up bailing a lot of grass hay off of it. And we were feeding it that winter, which is where I think we picked up some of the metal is off that old golf course. And, you know, I had a cow that went down. She just wasn't doing right. Wasn't eating, not getting around great. It was pretty cute within kind of caught her. I treated her and within two days she had died. And so I performed mortems on almost everything. And I encourage other people to do that because One, I wanted to figure out if it was something like hardware or was it something infectious that I need to worry about for the rest of my herd. I did a postmortem on her and and found the piece of metal. I still have the piece of wire around here somewhere that caused the disease. And at that point, I think I was, I don't know, 36 weeks pregnant when I cut her open. And I think she was almost seven months pregnant. And she had a A beautiful little bull calf in her. And so that was a hard day. You know, I think the pregnancy hormones flared. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, it was so tough. It was so tough to lose one of my own. And so, you know, that was a bad day. But I really used that as a a teaching moment and shared that with my followers of like, hey, you guys, like this can happen. It happens to me. Get out there and, and try to prevent it or at least know, you know, that this is something that
0: can happen on your farm as well. I remember you sharing that information and I remember how hard it was for you and, but I totally appreciate you taking that opportunity to make it a teachable moment for your followers because it was super valuable information. I know I personally shared it to mine, not that I have as many followers, <laughs> but it was something that I, I really appreciated you taking something that was still a really difficult experience for you, but sharing it. So I think it probably helped a lot of others too. So I appreciate that.
1: And, you know, that goes back to, you know, sharing what we do in agriculture, because I think think there's no denying that we love our animals, right? And we want to do what's right. best for them. And so showing that side to our consumers and to, you know, anybody who eats is really important. And well, it might feel silly, or you might feel judged by other farmers. That's not the choir that I want to preach to. So
0: I tend to try to put it out there. Right. And you're never going to make everyone happy. That's something that I have learned the older I get is, you know, you can't make everyone happy like no matter what, you could be Mother Teresa, and you will never make (laughs) everyone happy. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So no, I think it was really, really great. This has honestly been such a valuable conversation today. And I probably could like go on and on and on, and have asked you so many more questions, but I was like, okay, we need to, you know, limit it just a little bit, Katie. <laughs> but <laughs> as we wrap up this episode, what are two to three takeaways that you would like to leave our listeners with on hardware disease in cattle? Yes, one
1: prevention is the best medicine. So magnets and making sure your feed equipment and and bunks and pastures are free of metal, and then that to have a relationship with your local veterinarian sometimes are very undervalued and only called at emergencies but they can be very very helpful with some of these management things and and working up some of these cases for you.
0: Right. And you are such a huge proponent for, you know, supporting your local veterinarian. You had your recent launch of some merch and everything that you've did with that which I think went over really well. I thought that was amazing. And I think a lot of veterinarians appreciate that. So that's really, really neat. And then how can our listeners stay connected with you after this episode?
1: Yeah, I am at calf vet on Facebook and at calf vet underscore on Instagram. And I dabble in YouTube So you can find me there as well.
0: Awesome. And I do encourage all of our listeners to go check her out. She shares a lot of really valuable information that I think a lot of people can relate to, and even if it's not always—I mean, sometimes the educational side. She can be pretty—you know—you could sideline as a comedian if you wanted. I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I would say sometimes valuable, mostly stupid, but you know, there's some some tidbits of information here and there.
0: Just to feel like there's a little bit for everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I love it. Obviously, I've been following you for a little bit, and I'm a big fan and appreciate the value. That that you bring your followers. So thank you, Dr. Hake, again, for being on here and joining us. I had a wonderful time learning more about you and your background. And to our listeners, I just want to invite you to reach out to us. If you have more topic ideas that you would like to hear about, please reach out to us at podcast at stanleyforage.com. If you like our podcast and you listen on Apple, leave us a review. It helps others learn a little bit more about what our podcast is about and what value we bring. So they might want to jump on and listen to some of the episodes that we have to offer. So again, Dr. Hake, thank you for being on this episode today. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.